0: So much for tuning in today. It is Daniel Warman coming to you live from the Dream Imagine A Sports Studios. Tuesday, September the tenth, eight a.m. on the East Coast. If you're out west and you're awake, kudos to you. Thanks for tuning in, all around the world. We really do appreciate it. Welcome into the show. Coming up in just a little while, we have Gabriel Pinalosa, and uh, he he started a series yesterday, um, a a three-part series on uh, pay-to-play soccer, and you can find that posted at uh, prorelforusa.blogspot.com. That is uh, Chris Kessel's blog. And uh there you can find uh, part one of that series. Uh, I recommend you doing that uh, to, to get some insight. He lives and works in um, the Los Angeles area and uh, has some has some good insight into some things that he's seeing uh, ramifications of the pay to play system so i I challenge you to uh, to, to take a read on that, and we're going to talk about that coming up uh, after the break. Uh, but before we do, um, Aspen Sports recently uh, released, this is uh, September the 4th, so last week, um, an article entitled Staying in the Game, Progress and Challenges in Youth Sports. And there's a few things here that stood out to me. Um, The Aspen Institute Sports and Society Programs Project Play discovered these trends within research of kids ages 6 to 12. So here's some of their highlights of the study. The percentage of kids playing team sports on a regular basis increased for the third consecutive year. Baseball, cheerleading, gymnastics, lacrosse, softball, swimming, tennis, volleyball, and wrestling, all registered positive bumps. Yeah, I did not mention soccer. We'll get back to that. Fewer kids were physically inactive for the fourth consecutive year and multi-sport play continued to make a slight comeback. So, the Aspen Institute Sports and Society, this this organization studies the participation, the effects of youth sports uh, as one of the things that they cover. And in this study, They go on to identify some some issues and they launched a project called Project Play 2020. And uh, one of the, the, the kind of marketing or ad campaigns is called Don't Retire Kid. And it raises awareness about gaps in the youth sports system that cause kids to quit sports or not start in the first place and solutions to keep them in the game. Uh, But major gaps remain, and here's a few insights. One, while regular sports participation increased to 38% in 2018, it's still far from the level of 45% in 2008. Kids from lower-income homes are more than three times as likely to be physically inactive families are spending on average almost $700 per child for one sport each year with some parents spending tens of thousands of dollars so when we when we when you look at some of those things there's a, there's a few things that stand out we haven't even gotten into soccer right we're just talking youth sports in general soccer is in is in line with these general figures uh, and statements that, that they give at the beginning of this article. So, overall, participation levels have increased slightly for youth sports. Not in soccer. You also notice not in American style football, tackle football. Neither of those sports saw an increase, they saw a decrease. Another thing that they are identifying is that kids from lower income homes are three times as likely to be physically inactive. So, why is that? Why are kids from lower income families three times as inactive? There's a few reasons and I ran into some of these when I had started a, a non pay to play soccer club a few years ago and when we went into that project my my belief was that the the primary barrier to entry were were the fees the club fees and one of the things that Aspen uh, identified is that families are spending on average almost $700 per child for one sport each year. So I I looked at that and said, look, if we can just tackle that number, we can open the door up for a lot more kids. So we started this program. The idea was was not to try to make a massive club because for us, every club. Uh, player was a a cost, an investment, an expense. Whereas when you're a pay to play club, every player is an income. It's the exact opposite. So we started the program with the idea not of having, you know, a thousand kids in the very beginning. It was let's run a pilot program with just a small number. So we had one single squad. We kept it small on purpose and all of our coaches were volunteers Uh, for our squad. We had three or four coaches, which you, you would think man, that's a lot of coaches, but you know, we were all for the most part, dads or, or big brothers. And, and so we all kind of did our part to pitch in and that kept the cost down so we could operate as a, as a non-pay-to-play club, and then we use sponsor money to cover any of our operating expenses, game expenses, et cetera. In that time, what we found, this I'm not talking about Aspen, I'm, I'm talking about us, what we found is that that helped a lot, that opened the door up, we could have conversations with a lot more kids. The majority of our players that played for us were not in the pay-to-play system. There were a few that came over. There were a few that played what what is often referred to as recreational soccer. So they're paying, you know, $85 or $55 or $65 for a season in the spring and maybe another season in the fall uh, with volunteer coaches, you know, all in-house, you know, not playing kids in other, other cities for the most part. We had a few of those kids. We had a few kids that that were part of the pay-to-play travel club system, but most of our kids were not in any organized soccer at all. They were not playing recreational organized soccer. They were not playing uh, expensive pay-to-play travel soccer. They were not playing anything organized at all. They are the exact type of kid that this study has identified most of them, not all of them, but most of them low-income families not participating in organized sport. So what we found when we got into that is that removing that fee meant we could have the conversation. But we also found that that did not by itself, solve the problem. That this was a multifaceted problem that goes beyond a fee. And this is where pay-to-play clubs have, have, have got to do a better job. You will hear clubs make this proclamation that, you know, we have scholarships available. I mean, if you can't afford it, we have scholarships available. We'll try to work with you. Okay. That means you get to start having the conversation. This is what we learned. You can now have the conversation with that kid. Okay. But that in and of itself does not solve the problem. And this is where pay-to-play clubs have, have traditionally been so myopically focused on running a pay-to-play business that they don't understand the other ramifications that go on and some of it doesn't have anything to do with their club yes the fees are a barrier to entry yes those fees prevent families from even wanting to have a conversation with you because they're embarrassed they don't want to have the conversation they don't even want to talk about it because it's embarrassing they can't afford it they want their kid to play but they're they they don't want to ask for a scholarship so when you have that situation and you get beyond that right so a pay-to-play club offers a scholarship or in our case we were a completely free-to-play club There was no barrier to entry. You didn't even have to buy the jersey. We provided everything. What we found was another aspect that I did not expect to encounter. And that was the parents were working all the time. And a lot of these kids were left on their own. So after school, they'd ride the bus home. They would hang out in their neighborhood and 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 they would play pickup soccer and do different things but to get to training they needed a ride to get where 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 we were practicing as a team they could not ride a bike they could not walk we had to go pick them up so we found very quickly transportation was was an element to this and then there were other aspects that played into this as well. And so there there are a lot of things that we have to take into consideration when we're looking at one of the things that they found in this study where kids from lower income homes are more than three times as likely to be physically inactive. There are other other pieces to this that we don't take into consideration. So, you know, I think I think that is that is a is a key point Um, and a key element to this, the other aspect that they found is that baseball saw an increase in participation for kids. Thanks in part to major league baseball initiatives to rejuvenate some local communities in the travel ball culture, which carries expensive costs. So major league baseball said, look, we've got to get our numbers back up. This is not going well. Have you heard that from us soccer and major league soccer recently? Do they want more kids playing, or are they fine with raising prices, increasing costs? Even at our development academy level, they just came out with a policy that said, we're going to raise exponentially your, your participation costs, because now you're not going to get to play locally. You've got to travel more. Does that sound like what Major League Baseball is doing? Were they trying to make it harder... More expensive? I don't think so. Tackle football continued to to decline and again remained behind flag football. Soccer has lost 474,000 kids in five years. That is more than the population or around the size of the population of the country. Adult through kids of Iceland four hundred and seventy four thousand kids in five years soccer's participation rate is now closer to that of tennis than it is to baseball or basketball are you kidding me unbelievable under this federation Over the last five years, this includes Carlos Cordero, this includes Sunil Galati, over the last five years we've had nearly a half a million kids walk away from the sport. What more evidence do we need to see at the higher levels in professional soccer, in the way that they're handling the U.S. women's national team, in the way that they've handled Hope Solo with her case, the NASL. When you look at uh, the, the the other lawsuit that we're going to get to later in the show that came out yesterday, when you look at how they've held, handled the Development Academy, their decision making time and time again all the way down even to the point to where it is it is having an effect on the participation numbers of nearly half a million kids what more do we need to see to say that the leadership at US soccer needs to be replaced we are not going anywhere fast we are going down Greg Berhalter is the U.S. Men's National Team coach can talk all he wants about progress. It's not happening. Carlos Cordero can talk about growing the sport and great things are ahead. It's not happening. The, the numbers don't lie. Half a million kids are not participating in soccer. That's under your watch. The leaders of U.S. soccer, that's under your watch. It's ridiculous. It is absolutely crazy. Um, we, we, we'll, we'll try to get back to some of this later in in the show, but um, just unbelievable numbers of kids walking away from the sport. That that is a decrease in registrations. Half a million kids. Um, unbelievable. Thanks for tuning into the show. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductig Brand, D U K T I G Brand.com. Use the promo code D W SHOW to get 10% off of your order. Again, that is D W SHOW to get 10% off of your order at DuckTickBrand.com. The maker of really cool notebooks and products. Check them out at DuckTickBrand.com. We'll be right back, right back after this with Gabriel Pinalosa. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, it, it We're going to take a look at pay-to-play and um, at least start that conversation. And in light of this Aspen report, I think he's got some insight into it as well. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. So, thanks so much for tuning in today. Really appreciate it. And joining us, special guest, Gabriel Pinalosa. And I'm sure I probably butchered that on accident. Gabe, welcome to the show. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, we are happy to have you on. How are you today?
1: Daniel, hello. Doing well. Thank you so much for the invite. And the pronunciation was uh, was admirable. No worries on that front.
0: I try, um, as I told you, uh, off air, um, I speak Spanglish and, uh, I try, I try my best. Doesn't always work out the best, but I try. I am willing to make a fool out of myself, uh, trying to, uh, to, 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 to learn Spanish and, and say things in Spanish, even, uh, even at my own peril sometimes, but, uh, I try anyway. So, uh, look, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Chris Kessel and I are good friends, and I I noticed uh, that you had started the first of a three-part series on pay-to-play soccer. I reached out to you because I was like, oh, this would be great conversation for the show and you graciously agreed to to come on the show and talk about some of your views with pay pay to play soccer and i just wanted to kind of open up to you open up for you uh the opportunity to kind of tell us uh you know a little bit about your background and why you are so passionate about pay to play soccer
1: um well, well i mean my my background i'm originally from venezuela born in caracas but i grew up early childhood in canada so i was i was exposed as, at an early age to kind of what the uh, what what's possible if um if programs are are supported well and and there is kind of a a strong central vision um you know obviously canada has um a lot of kind of public programs um that work quite well um and at around the age of I was, yes, almost 11, kind of in those formative soccer years when you start to get competitive, where things start, or where, when it should start to change. Obviously, in this country, that uh, happens oftentimes way too soon. Um, but that's when I went back to, to Venezuela, and I saw kind of those opportunities disappear. Um, now, they disappeared from me in Venezuela for mer- for very different reasons. Um, then they may not be available for, um, universally to, to kids here in this country, but that experience of being some of having something that with, with which you identify so strongly, uh, be ripped away, um, is, is a feeling of just unjust uh, this um, kind of uh, unfairness of the world Um, it's a piece of and that's why you know I wrote in the article it is very much this piece of your identity that you are told um, does not qualify for uh, fruition or development and I think just formatively um, that's probably how that seed got planted kind of in my head and then I I, you know went to college in, in Pennsylvania and saw the treatment there and how it was very much even even in those very local circles in central Pennsylvania, small liberal arts college. Uh, everyone still knew each other. And it was the people that knew all the other people that had access to those opportunities. And that's really the way opportunities taken away. It was the same way it was taken away in Venezuela. It was who you knew. And in this country as well, it's uh, the people that can, you you know, through access and the money in this country uh, gets you that access. So that's how it's kind of the genesis of my interest in this topic.
0: Now, you grew up, loving the game and and seeing the game, seeing different aspects of the game. With your history, your background, did you have any personal experience with, you know, negative or adverse effects either directly on you or maybe friends of the pay-to-play soccer system? And just for anyone who, you know, has been under a rock for the last, you know, few decades, uh, American soccer is built within the, the structure of the U.S. Soccer Federation in its formal programming on a system where families pay hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars per year for their kids to participate on very expensive uh, soccer teams. So, did you have personal, you know, experience, or, or maybe friends that you know suffered as a result of the pay to play system?
1: Um, daily, I I coached. I mean, I've I've coached kids from all over the city, um, and I've seen kids just leave the game because they can't they can't pay, and and clubs that I justify by saying, well, we give, um, yes, we charge whatever, 1500 or $2,000 a year, um, to, to be in our club and to, and to, get, uh, trained and coached, but we offer scholarships to, to a lot of people. And yes, that's true, but we shouldn't even be in that situation to begin with. I mean, I can think of these, um, few years ago, I had a, uh, 17 team and these twin brothers, um, from South central, they, they had too many distractions and then their parents had too many, um, pressures in life, um, to, to commit to soccer. And soccer would have transformed both these kids' lives and they were very promising players. And it, it just wasn't there for them because, simply because they couldn't afford it. When I first moved to LA, um, I I ran these um kind of government programs for uh after school uh government grants for after school programs in South Central and you see the, the the talent you see in just like this concrete jungle, um, kids playing soccer where the goal is the the, the post of a of a basketball hoop, um, and and the concrete is not flat, right? It's uh, they're playing in these horrible conditions, and they have that. I, I think um, Daniel, you you mentioned in a in a previous podcast this this kind of this this intangible that, that kids grow up with in, in other countries, this kind of um wherewithal or, or cleverness of the game, this kind of survival instincts within the game. And that's kind of where it's it's learned in these kind of um and in these more under underserved communities. And and it's um, and I see that type of talent and that type of really Um, that type of awareness, not, not the awareness of the game on academic sense, but the awareness of the game on a more, um, kind of like the cellular sense cellular or intuitive sense of the game. You see it in these communities and they haven't had the instruction to kind of cloud that and they can't afford to afford it. So they can't take that natural ability, um, any, anywhere They, they don't, their opportunity is shunned.
0: Well, I, I think a lot of these, these kids that you're describing are, have what I call a true footballing culture. And sometimes we confuse footballing culture and, and this love of the game with you know, the fact that, well, if, if, you're, if you're playing on a soccer team and you like soccer, that you have a soccer culture you know, or, or that you identify with the soccer culture or that your family has a soccer uh, culture. I was having this conversation recently with a youth soccer coach about this specific issue. And, and he identified on his team that there was, you know, uh, of the, you know, 18 to 20 kids in his squad, um, you know, that out of that group, there was maybe three or four most five, so, you know, you're talking 20, 25% of the kids in his squad that he thought had a true football culture and that it was primarily, you know, due to their family's influence um you know their backgrounds their love of the game they're watching matches all the time they're you know eat sleeping and and breathing the game but most of his his players were, were just not on that level they they would call themselves soccer players but they're not really from a footballing culture and uh and i think i think when you see these kids um and and they're not just in LA and and there's a lot of them there they're all over this country that don't have access uh to the game and you know one of the things that I, that I learned uh with a project that I ran uh, a few years ago was that it was it it went beyond for us uh personally it went beyond you know finding ways to you know Cover expenses, operating expenses of the team... Um, You know, where a lot of pay to play clubs, our club was not a pay to play club. Everything was paid for by sponsors. So the kids were not having to worry about forking out, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars uh, for a uniform or anything. All that was given to them. But what we ran into also were logistics issues, which I think you also kind of hit on with those two two brothers, which is, you know, family work schedule and others where we had to really go out of our way to even provide transportation, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for kids to get to practice what what are some other things that you see on a regular basis in terms of detrimental effects of pay to play uh, soccer on kids is it racial? Is it is it, you know, um, do you think that that's a, a part of it, that it's intentional? Uh, or do you think it's just a, a byproduct of the system? Are there other things that you see uh, involved or, or other repercussions of pay-to-play uh, in your community?
1: Hmm. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, I I do think there are I mean whenever you have any uh kind of economic element um you will inherently have a a racial element um given the the obviously the um income inequality in the country um but I I think I would say really what what comes to mind for for me is when when we're talking about that soccer culture just the, the whole just by if if you the pay to play system is inherently contrary to the most fundamental culture of soccer right so the soccer is a, it's a very simple game right it's a it's a rectangle um couple goals and a ball right um and and the the beauty of the game right is is the intentionality with which uh, we play it, right? So the, the movements that we make on the field, we, they, we, we never make a movement in isolation. We're always thinking about other people and how our actions are going to impact other people. Um, if, we, if we want another player to do something, to move into a certain space, well, if we move into one, one space, that might entice them to move into that space. And having this kind of, just some intuitive connection with other human beings. Um, I think is really the fundamental culture of soccer. So to have, to turn that into a pay to play system is really a perversion of the sport. Um, and then, so it's no wonder that the, the culture of the sport gets perverted along the way because that's the system within which that culture is operating.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely uh, follow your your train of thought there, and I and I think it's an important point that you made. The game is a simple game; it is a it's a very clear uh, set of rules, and what you do inside of that sandbox uh, is the artwork that you create. Um, and uh, and and yet we have kind of mucked up uh, the ecosystem. That goes along with the game, you know, the game of football, uh, with with access, rules, lack of opportunity, um, etc. And we've built it based on um, this this element of pay to play, which I believe directly stems. And you're never going to get away from, you know, pay to play soccer in terms of having skin in the game, even overseas, you'll have, you'll have clubs and they'll have membership dues, but those fees are much, 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 much smaller. They're manageable to, to be a member of a club. Uh, so when, when someone says, well, sh- you should wipe it out and then, and it should, everything should be free. That's it's not free around the world. It's just very, very subsidized. It's very, very small. What a family would pay on an annual basis for participating with that club. The difference is the ecosystem that allows that type of subsidization uh, and subsidizing of, of players and player access. And that, that system is having an ecosystem of open access for the clubs has this carry on effect of open access for the players um, with, with a, a much lower financial burden for the players. So just by having a club in Portugal be in the, the Portuguese system of, of promotion and relegation and access based on sporting merit, that club through revenue sources that go beyond what, what a family's burden is for the child is able to receive enough revenue to then be able to um, subsidize some of those costs. you also have and an, another uh, element to this is that coaches in Europe, especially in academies, if you're if you're at a smaller club for example, are not paid near as much as what they're p- paid in the US. And so you have lower overhead as well. Um, and yet these clubs keep churning out professionals and better quality soccer than what we see over here in the U.S. Um, and, and I think that's an element of, of you know, when we're looking at pay to play soccer that we we can't overlook the, the ecosystem that has created a necessity of these clubs. To to be able to survive and operate uh, is to charge families because they don't have any other revenue sources uh, from from the game itself. Now, they could go do some other things, like they could figure out a way to run a, a local business that the proceeds could go in and, and, and fund the club. There's other things they could do to get creative. I, I fully accept that. Uh, and, and I'm a big believer in, in using your entrepreneurial spirit to find creative solutions for that. However, the ecosystem of us soccer uh, should be helping uh, alleviate the burden on these families by creating more access for the clubs, which would then, uh, you know, to reduce the amount of money that a family would have to pay. What What do you see in that regard in terms of sporting merit, promotion, relegation, and open access for clubs having an effect on the ability to to reduce those financial burdens for families?
1: I mean, I I think, um, I think you said it well, everything is in in the ecosystem. Um, you know, the, it's, you, you kind of only, sometimes we only believe what we can see. So if our, if our ecosystem is not one that provides opportunity, um, we don't see the experience as one of opportunity or one, and so we therefore don't want to feel creative Right, because um, if there's opportunity, then we're going to find creative ways to try to maximize the opportunity for us, and that that kind of keeps our our interest going, and it, and it helps us develop mastery and all these, and all of these things. But if there's if opportunity is closed down, if there's no kind of um, way forward, if there's no path, or um, then. Then just we we get less motivated and and less creative just um as as individuals right so so I think having uh having that closed system definitely has a pretty pretty significant um trickle effect down very much down to the the players the players of a certain age right when when they that can start understanding these things and when they start understanding that you know maybe the the dreams they have of becoming a professional player aren't as realistic as they thought when they're looking around and they're about to graduate high school and maybe, maybe they struggle in school or, or have to go or are going to community college or don't want to go to college. And then what do they do? Um, they're kind of, there's nowhere else for them to go. So um, having an ecosystem that suppresses opportunity, I, in, in my opinion, will then suppress kind of um, realization and realization, creativity and talent um, and self-realization uh, within, within the sport.
0: Well, I, I look forward to uh, to reading the rest of your series. You, you've already published part one on uh, Chris Kessel's blog, uh, ProRailForUSA.blogspot.com, and uh, it was a it was a, a good you know. F- first entry into, into the series. Uh, I look forward to reading the other two. Uh, how can people connect with you, uh, online, Twitter, however, uh, that, that you connect with people so that they can uh, be able to interact with you, uh, you know, find out when, when the, the next part of the series is going to come out and, you know, and trade some thoughts back and forth.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to, um, so my, uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm very much involved in the fantasy Premier League community. Um, I do have a podcast in, uh, in FPL, uh, called the FPL Roundtable, but I can be found on Twitter at F as in Frank, P as in Peter, L is in Larry, and then the word lens, um, at FPL lens on, on Twitter um and and this is the uh the promotion relegation and opening u s soccer and reforming u s soccer as a community that i've recently you know begun to uh, become involved in, with and i'm actually really appreciating it um really appreciate uh Chris Kessel for giving me that platform and yes this is the first of three articles um kind of wrapping up the system of the kind of overall equity in soccer in the u s and seeing Seeing that as the, the real identity of the sport, and if we can be more equitable in our practices in the sport and be more inclusive, um, that's then, then I think all of us, and this is why we kind of fight this fight, is all of us see the, the real opportunity for the sport in this country.
0: Well, I think uh, I think you, you started off with a, a good part one of the series. Uh, I think you've got some good insight, and you're you're in in the hotbed of American soccer in terms of uh, youth soccer, both within the U.S. soccer system, but also the ecosystem that exists outside of U.S. soccer. Uh, that might be the most vibrant uh, hot pocket for that in America as well. There in uh, Southern California. So, good luck in your work, uh, coaching and being involved in the. Community community. community but also with this project we look forward to following it and and thanks uh, for joining the show thanks dan i appreciate it bye-bye thank thank you that is gabriel pinalosa and again probably butchered his his name but uh i try uh thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll be right back after this no one no man no woman no child should ever have to
1: drink green water with bugs with algae with disease in it bad water and
0: a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world we know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every
1: single person on earth and when you can bring water into communities it truly
0: show thanks so much for tuning in this Tuesday September the 10th I'd like to thank Gabe for coming on the show and uh, spending some time with us talking about his series and uh, like to have him back on again the in, in the near future to, uh, as he wraps up the series uh, when he finishes part three to kind of Talk with him and maybe even look at uh, having some others on for kind of a roundtable edition about pay to play soccer and its effects on the sport, which we were we were talking about before we went to break. And, and, and to the interview with Gabe, um, looking at the the Aspen uh, study over, you know, we're, we're right around half a million kids in five years uh, not participating in soccer anymore and. Um, it's it's just mind-boggling to me that the federation does not realize that the house is on fire i mean lawsuit after lawsuit which we're about to get to a new one when you look at the participation numbers when you look at the the fact that the the voting in the 2018 presidential election, there were more individual votes cast for outside candidates by a wide margin than for establishment candidates. So how did Carlos Cordero win? He won because the system is rigged for a status quo candidate to win. U.S. soccer weights its votes. We've talked about it before on the show. So the professional council gets around 25% of the overall vote total in the election. The athlete council gets 20% of the overall vote in the election. When the two collude together, which happened, you have 20 people on the athlete council. You have a handful of people in the professional council. You got 45% of the vote and you only need 50% plus one to win the election. You can see how 30 people out of hundreds of voters, 30 people's votes count more than hundreds of voters. It's absurd. So um, the House is on fire and they're not doing anything about it. Uh, they keep paying lip service to the fact that they're making progress, or that you know things are getting better, and we're we're doing all this great stuff, and we've built another committee, and blah blah blah. There's not really a lot going on there, and um, so you know, I think I think that this is just more proof that. Our country's federation is not doing its job. And as a matter of fact, there was a lawsuit filed yesterday by Relevant Sports. If you don't know who Relevant Sports are, they are the only other primary competition to Soccer United Marketing in the U.S., and they are the ones who organize and run the International Champions Cup, which is basically it's just a big marketing pitch on a series of international club friendlies in the summer. So it is... It is, it's not a real cup competition. I mean, they, they've tried to create these, uh, and, and they've done a really good job with their marketing and trying to, to build these things up, and they try to bring in some marquee teams every summer and showcase these teams in different cities as if it were a real cup. I mean, it's really not. They are just friendlies, but they've dressed it up that way, and they've tried to to elevate the summer-friendly circuit from just you know being, you come watch um you know Barcelona and Inter Milan in a stadium you know scrimmage like they've tried to turn them into real games and and give the fans at least an idea of what it's like to be in Europe and see some of these matches and uh and so they're the only really other competition to Soccer United Marketing and Soccer United Marketing the company that is the second company owned by the same major league soccer owner operator. So every, every time a new team is announced and they, they have won the rights to buy into major league soccer and have a team, the newest in St. Louis, what comes with that is they're also buying a share in into a second company. They're actually buying into two companies, not one. They're buying into Major League Soccer. They're also at the same time buying the same share into Soccer United Marketing. Soccer United Marketing handles uh, the, the event operations, digital, etc. for U.S. soccer. They do a lot with event operations, with uh, and with sponsorships uh, domestically for the Mexican Federation, for Concacaf, uh, and and for others, and and they are the competition to relevant sports, and they have been working to with the federation colluding together to try to keep relevant sports from operating a successful business, and this is their allegation, and um, and from the things I've seen. I think their allegations hold merit. Um, relevant CEO Daniel Silman said in a statement that U.S. soccer has been delinquent in its responsibility to promote the growth of soccer. Quote, for decades, the U.S. has shared its professional sports leagues with fans from all corners of the globe, while the U.S. Soccer Federation has deprived our fans from seeing the highest level of soccer. Why? Because US, Because the U.S. Soccer Federation is working with FIFA to shield Soccer United Marketing, who promotes its own gains from any competitive threat. So earlier this year, Relevant Sports sued the U.S. Soccer Federation in state court because they were trying to host a match and they felt like U.S. Soccer were interfering, and they were. And so what Relevant did is they ended up withdrawing that. It was too late. There was no way they could salvage it anyway. They ended up withdrawing it. And now they have come back with a full-on bazooka lawsuit. (laughs) And by bazooka, I mean this bad boy is a full-on next-level lawsuit because it is an antitrust lawsuit. And the same lawyer that is handling this same type of allegation from the NASL is also handling this case. So there's two antitrust law, law uh, lawsuits. One is the NASL, and now relevant sports also represented by Jeffrey Kessler and his law firm are bringing their own antitrust lawsuit so what we are seeing is a systematic systematic interference against competition. Why? We talked about this last week, but I want to get back to it now, which is this. Why are these things happening? Why is the U.S. soccer voting set up the way it is to rig elections where 30 people can can elect the status quo candidate while hundreds vote for change? Why is it that relevant sports keeps having their business interfered with on behalf of Soccer United Marketing by the U.S. Soccer Federation, why is it that the NASL was interfered with on behalf of Major League Soccer in the USL? Why is it that the U.S. Women's National Team are having to fight to get dollars that they should already have? Why is money coming in for them being redirected to Major League Soccer? Why are MLS academies getting preferential treatment in getting status, getting a status level of division one or level one in the academy system, regardless of sporting merit and on-field records. Why do all of these things keep happening? Worldview. And what did we talk about with worldview? When it comes to Major League Soccer, you know Major League Soccer, soccer United marketing that's that's two companies, same ownership groups in each. So let, let's talk about them as one entity, one project, one group of people. When it comes to MLS and some, their worldview is control and power in order to create the leverage. Or extort communities for revenue, control, and power. They want to control the access, they want the power and authority to regulate. Therefore, they can create for themselves financial instruments to make money. This is their worldview. Over and above the sport, over and above the competition. This is what they are structured to do. This is what they do. When you look at the worldview of U.S. soccer, when you look at U.S. soccer, what is their worldview? Their worldview is MLS must succeed no matter what. This worldview began When Major League Soccer began, when it looked like it was coming to an end in around 2002, U.S. Soccer stepped in, created this setup in collusion with Major League Soccer, and have been in lockstep ever since. This isn't a recent problem. It's just manifesting in a bigger way as more and more interest in the soccer community at large has grown, but the federation has not created a system to channel or leverage it because it's marriage to you to, to soccer United marketing and MLS have prevented this pinned up demand from getting realized. So what's happening? The NASL, Relevant Sports, the U.S. Women's National Team, Hope Solo. You see youth clubs with solidarity payments and training compensation. All of these elements are coming out. Why? Because the Federation has not been serving all. Their worldview has been Major League Soccer must succeed no matter what. Because in lockstep with that is Soccer United Marketing, and this is the gravy train that they are all on. So anyone that comes in the way of that, anyone who is in the way of that, is a threat and must be dealt with. Now, U.S. Soccer has been really smart in a lot of ways, in the way that they have done their dirty work. They've been clever. And I've often said behind the scenes to U.S. soccer insiders, people that work in the sport at all levels, state associations and others, I've said to them that, that for far too long, the leaders at U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer have been playing chess while the rest of the country has been playing checkers. They've been playing a tactical game far and beyond what the rest of the country's been playing. So if you think of this in a game of, of survivor, outwit, outlast, outplay, they have been very very cunning in the way that they have gone about trying to do what they've done and it's proven to be to be very difficult so far to to prove to catch them with a smoking gun because they've been very very smart in the way they've gone about doing their obstruction But when you look at these, th- these things that are happening time and time again, the NASL, Hope Solo, the U.S. Women's National Team, relevant sports, crossfire with the youth clubs, solidarity payments, training compensation. When you look at all these things over and over again, we see a pattern. It's one thing, it's one thing if... If you, if you have somebody that, that, that just has an axe to grind and they just come at you, that, that's one thing. It's another thing when you see this happen over and over again from different places, different sources on different issues. And none of the cases are getting tossed without, you know, tossed saying that they have no basis on merit. None of these cases are getting tossed. So when a case is not getting tossed and you're seeing this over and over again, I'm not saying that it it is a symbol of U.S. soccer being guilty, but what I am saying is, is it is proof that there is at least something going on that is systemic for all of these lawsuits to be brought in all of these different areas and none of them are getting tossed from the outset. That is a problem to me because if someone came at me with a lawsuit and there was no, no basis, no merit, nothing got tossed and that was it, well, let's move on. If it, if it was just one lawsuit and we had to go through the process and I was innocent at the end, we move on. No big deal. But this is an entirely different matter. This is US soccer, our national governing body, which is dealing with lawsuit after lawsuit. And we're only talking about these lawsuits. We're not we have even brought up the court of arbitration and sport case which which is not a US lawsuit. That is an international sporting arbitration case that Miami FC and Stockade FC have brought to the court of arbitration and sport in Europe to rule about the way U.S. soccer and MLS have worked to keep promotion and relegation from being implemented. So time and time again, we're seeing this over and over again. We're seeing this now, again, with a relevant sports case. Another antitrust suit filed. Another lawsuit filed. And you can sit here and be gullible and listen to words from Cordero words from others at the, at the highest levels of the Federation. Listen to words from Greg Berhalter tonight with the U.S. Men's National Team match against Uruguay and hear their political talking points. But you got to understand, those are just talking points. We're going nowhere fast. We've lost nearly half a million kids since uh, in the last five years. We have lawsuit after lawsuit. Our U.S. Women's National Team are not getting paid and compensated the way they should be. They're not getting the treatment they deserve. Things have to change. And the voters within U.S. soccer are going to have to do a better job of working together. It may not be enough because of the way that the, the voting is set up but they need to make their voice heard in the upcoming 2020 election for the vice president and the presidential election in 2022. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for tuning in. As always, you can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at danielworkman.com. Catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see everybody again tomorrow.